In here, uh, since the beginning of January, we've been in a series called Conversations with Jesus, where we've been looking at significant conversations that Jesus had with various uh, men and women uh, in the Gospel of John. That's, that's been our focus, is, is John's Gospel. And along the way, we've tried to be attentive to the fact that Jesus is not only speaking to these people in John's Gospel, but he's speaking to us today. So, so what is it that he's uh, saying to us? Last week was Easter, and so we jumped ahead in our series to John chapter 20, uh, where we find the resurrection story. And today we're going to go back to where we left off uh, before Easter, which is uh, John chapter 12. As we go through this story this morning, we'll have the verses up on the screen. You can follow along that way. If, if you're new with us, you'll, you'll notice that a lot of people are following along in a paper Bible. And uh, if you're here this morning and you forgot to bring yours or, or you just don't have one, uh, our ushers are coming down the aisle and we got one right in the front row. Um, uh, but if you'll just signal them somehow, they'll make sure that you get a Bible. And if you don't have one at home, Lucas, make sure you take this one with you. <laughs> that probably wasn't kind, but uh, just before we... Uh, open our Bibles together. Let's, let's pray. God, we believe that you still speak to people today. And you do that through this book, uh, the Bible, the Scriptures. And uh, we pray that you would do that this morning. We recognize that uh, so often you said something like, let, let those who have ears to hear listen. And so uh, as we open our Bibles today, help us to listen. Help us to listen well. Uh, not listen to me, but listen to you. And I pray that you would give us hearts to receive what it is you are saying and that by your spirit, you would enable us to put those things into practice and that we would leave changed, different than when we came in uh, at the beginning of this service. So we ask that you would do all of that, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, again, we're in John chapter 12. That's on page 864 of the Bibles that the ushers just handed out. And we're going to begin uh, right at the beginning there uh, with chapter 1, where we read, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner to honor Jesus there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. When we left off two weeks ago in John 11, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And here in chapter 12, uh, John tells us uh, that it's now just six days before the Passover. The next day, uh, he says a little bit later, uh, we'll begin what we call Holy Week with Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, something we celebrate uh, on Palm Sunday. So you can see that uh, the timeline is, is aligning with our own timeline pretty closely here. Um, uh, but at this point, 
John isn't so focused on Passover. There's a lot of things that we could say about that. But at this point, he's simply telling us about a dinner that is being put on to honor Jesus, presumably to, to thank him for raising Lazarus from the dead. I'm going to suggest uh, this morning that this story is primarily about worship. And so I want to invite you as we, as we go through the story to be looking for the worshipers in the story, as well as those who refuse to worship Jesus. And to help you with that a little bit, I want to, I want to suggest a definition for worship that goes uh, beyond what many of us uh, often reduce worship to. Often we reduce it to what we did at the beginning of this service, sing some songs to God together. Uh, but worship is, is much broader than that. And so uh, I offer this as a, as a definition. Worship is responding to God for who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. And I hope you can see that that begins to encompass really all of life. And uh, that's, that's what I want you to be looking for this morning. Three uh, of the gospel accounts tell this story that we have in John chapter 12. And each of them include uh, a little information that, that, that gives us uh, a fuller picture of the scene that, that John is telling about. All three gospels tell us that this dinner was taking place in Bethany. Only John tells us that Lazarus and Martha and Mary were there. Matthew and Mark tell us that the dinner was at the house of someone known as Simon the leper. Uh, but it happened in Bethany. And, and Bethany is about a mile and a half, maybe two miles east of Jerusalem on the southeastern slope of the, the Mount of Olives. Bethany, the, the word Bethany means literally house of misery or house of the poor. Uh, Bethany is the poorhouse. Uh, it was just outside the required safe zone specified by Jewish law for those who were unclean. Um, people like lepers. And because it was low on the southeast side of the Mount of Olives, it was out of view of the temple. And so it was a fitting place for the poor and the sick to live. Uh, in fact, it was a perfect place for someone known as Simon the leper who was hosting this dinner for Jesus. Perhaps a better way to refer to Simon would be Simon, the guy who used to be a leper until Jesus healed him. All right? He's never listed specifically among uh, uh, those whom Jesus heals but he couldn't have hosted this dinner if he was still a leper. And it makes sense, I think, uh, that Jesus would have been the one to bring healing to him and that Simon would love nothing more than to host a dinner in Jesus' honor, a, a thank you dinner, if you will, for healing Simon and raising Lazarus from the dead. But John's focus isn't on Simon. John's focus is on four other people, one of whom he has a conversation with at the dinner table. Martha was there. She was serving dinner. 
she had probably been in the kitchen for several days getting everything ready for the celebration. And if you're familiar with Martha, you might notice that there's something significant missing from the mention of her in this story. Anyone know what that might be? She's not complaining. Horrible that that's kind of how we know her, but she's not complaining. Uh, You might remember that in a previous story about Martha, she was complaining to Jesus that her sister Mary wasn't helping out in the kitchen. Instead, she was sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him teach. And you may also remember what Jesus said to her. He said, my dear Martha, or in some translations, Martha, Martha, Martha. (laughs) You are worried and upset over so many things. But there is only one thing worth being concerned about. And Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. What was it that Mary discovered? We'll see in a minute. But at this dinner, Martha's not complaining. She's serving um, without complaint. Make note of that. Lazarus was at the table. Uh, You remember Lazarus' story from a couple of weeks ago. He got sick, and then he got really sick, and then he died. And then Jesus shows up four days after he's already buried, already in the tomb. And then there's this interesting conversation between Jesus and uh, Martha, where Jesus declares that he himself is the resurrection and the life, and anyone who believes in him won't die. And, and even if they do die, they'll live again, right? And after that conversation, Jesus goes to the tomb and shouts out in a loud voice. He calls Lazarus' name, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man, or the previously dead man, walked out of the tomb. Kent Hughes is, is one of the commentators I enjoy reading, and he imagines a conversation around the table that day. He imagines that Simon, the guy who used to be a leper, says something like this, guys, it was incredible. I mean, my skin went from crusty white scabs to completely clear, completely healthy. I lost three fingers to that horrible disease. And that day, I I watched them all grow back right before my eyes. And then I reached up and my eyebrows were there. I was healed. I was healed. And maybe, Hughes imagines, Lazarus interrupted him and said, Simon, that's nothing, man. I was dead. I was in paradise for four days. I saw all the biggies, Abraham, Moses, David. Let me tell you, though, the funniest thing I ever saw was when I came back and I walked out of that tomb. Peter's eyes were that big and his mouth hung open. And they all enjoy a good laugh and maybe elbow Peter. And then the laughter of the guys is broken up. 
by something that's both sacred and scandalous. Uh, It was a beautiful thing, and it bordered on blasphemy. Look at verse 3. John says, Mary took half a liter of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard. She anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Pure nard or or spike nard uh, was an essential oil, is an essential oil, from the root of a plant that grows in the foothills of the Himalayas. It takes a lot of this plant to come up with uh, a Roman pound. Some of your uh, translations might say a pound. That's a Roman pound. It's about 12 ounces of oil. And Israel is a long ways from the Himalayas. And so this is really expensive stuff. This is not something you pick up at the local market. We learn in just a couple of verses that this was worth a year's wages. A year's wages. We don't know where she got it. Maybe it was an heirloom handed down from from several generations. It could be, uh, some some think it it may have been Mary's dowry. And and so in a very real sense, her future, her, her hope, without it she has... No hope for for a husband, protection, no provision, no security. However she came by it, it it was not likely to ever be replaced because she lives in Bethany, an impoverished community on the outside of the city. Bethany, the poorhouse. In Matthew and Mark's accounts, the jar holding this expensive oil is made of alabaster. And Mark tells us that, that she breaks the, the top off of the jar to get the oil out. Uh, apparently it was either sealed to preserve the, the purity and, and potency of the oil, or it may have had just a very small opening in it that would just allow just a, just a drop to come out at a time. That won't do for what Mary has planned. Matthew and Mark say that she poured it out on Jesus' head. John says that she poured it on his feet. Combining the two accounts, uh, Jesus was covered head to toe with this pungent uh, spice. And, And the aroma, he says, filled the whole house. I wonder if it's possible that that Mary had been influenced by a previous incident that that had taken place earlier in Jesus' ministry. It's described for us in Luke 7. And in that incident, Jesus was reclining at another dinner table in another town when a sinful woman came in. It's not the same story. It's a different story entirely. Some imagine that this sinful woman maybe was Mary Magdalene that we talked about being the first to come to the tomb last week. Mary Magdalene, who uh, Jesus had cast seven demons out of. She'd encountered Jesus before. He'd forgiven her sins. And she was holding an alabaster jar full of perfume. She she may have been intending to anoint Jesus' head and lost control and just 
began to weep and her tears falling on Jesus' feet and then dried his feet with her hair and anointed them with the perfume in, in, in an act of gratitude and worship. It's possible, as, as one of Jesus' disciples, that Mary may have seen this for herself. She no doubt had heard about this. She may have thought, I want to do the same thing. I want to show Jesus how much I love him. I want to worship him like that woman did. So I think for Mary, it was a calculated act of worship. She knew exactly what she was doing. She knew that her unpinned hair would have been perceived as something only loose women do, something only prostitutes do. Touching Jesus' feet like this would have been seen as inappropriately intimate. But as we'll see in a minute, Jesus saw it as something different. So now we come to the conversation in the story. It's very brief. Uh, Judas was at the table. Uh, According to Matthew and Mark, he voiced what the others around the table were already thinking. Verse 4, Then Judas Iscariot, the disciple who was going to betray him, said, why wasn't this oil sold for 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. In Mark's account, he says that Judas was saying these things directly to Mary. And Mark uses a strong word. He says that Judas was was raging in anger at her. Usually when people display fits of anger like this, there's a reason behind it. And John gives us that reason. He says that Judas was a thief. He was pilfering money out of the money bag of of donations that funded Jesus' ministry. No doubt he was thinking that he, he could skim off the top of that if this expensive gift had been sold. It's interesting, isn't it? We, we know that Judas would later take 30 pieces of silver as blood money to betray Jesus. Think of the comparison. Mary gave 300 pieces of silver to worship Jesus, and Judas took just 30 to betray him. John also tells us that Judas actually didn't care one bit about the poor. I'm sure Judas thought he sounded really spiritual by saying, it should be given to the poor. You know, like maybe the other guys around the table would go, oh yeah, that's a good idea, right? Whatever he was thinking though, it elicited uh, uh, an interesting response from Jesus a pretty dramatic response from Jesus. Because in verse 7, Jesus says, leave her alone. It's strong language. Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. Jesus has, has had it with the bad treatment of Mary. 
His words are stern like a, like a dad who has had enough and says, stop now. You leave her alone. Mark's account adds that Jesus perceives what Mary has done as something really beautiful. And the explanation or interpretation of her act is a little more clear in Mark's gospel. Mark has Jesus saying, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. I assure you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. That's what we're doing this morning. So often what we highlight in this passage is, is Mary's costly worship. And it, and it certainly was that. Um, some, some preachers use, use this passage to say, come on, dig deeper, people. Make it costly. Make it hurt, right? But according to Jesus, it, it was more than that. Whether Mary intended this act for the meaning that Jesus attaches to it or not, we, we don't know, but Jesus makes it really clear he uses it as another opportunity to tell his disciples that he was going to die so that we all could live. And then Jesus adds this, this strange statement that I think should trouble any of us who are, are students of Jesus' message and the message of the whole Bible. He says in verse 8, For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. What does he mean? Uh, let me tell you what I think he doesn't mean. Uh, because this verse has been ripped out of its context and used as an argument against helping the poor. Um, instead, just worshiping Jesus. Or if it has to do with poor people at all, it, it has to do with their spiritual poverty, right? We just need to feed their souls, not their bellies. Uh, there's, a, there's a prominent pastor in our country who has uh, railed against uh, what he calls social justice. But in doing so, I, I really believe, and I'm not going to name him, but I believe he has heretically set himself against biblical justice. We can't forget that justice is woven all the way through uh, the Bible. So, you know, one of, the, one of the most basic rules for interpreting any verse in the Bible is to look not only at the immediate context, but at the whole of Scripture and, and see if, if that verse is consistent with the, the message of Jesus and the message of uh, the whole Bible. And right away, this, this verse should trouble us a little. Because in Isaiah 58, God is angry with the self-righteous worship of Israel. They think he should be impressed with their worship. That includes fasting. And in verses 6 through 8, God says, Do you really think this pleases me? No. This is the kind of fasting or worship I want. 
Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. And do not hide from relatives who need your help. James, the brother of our Lord, echoes this when he says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God means caring for orphans and widows in their distress. And then Jesus himself, looking, looking out to the final judgment, says, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left And then the king, Jesus is who we're talking about here, will say, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous, those on his right, will answer him, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, Jesus, will answer them, I tell you the truth, just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters, you did it. For me, these words that I, that I just read in Matthew's gospel appear immediately before Matthew's account of this dinner. Interesting. So back to our passage in John. We know this. Jesus never contradicts his own message or the message of the, of the Bible. And so when we have a verse like this, that, that seems maybe to contradict the rest of Scripture, we need to understand why this verse is, is, is there. Here we're talking about issues of poverty and justice, but it's the same no matter what the issue is that we're talking about. If, if the whole Bible teaches one thing, and you're looking at a verse that seems to contradict that, it's probably that, it's probably that verse that is the anomaly. And these anomalies usually have a really good explanation. Here in John 12, 8, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 15. In verse 10, God says, Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. And then verse 11 is the quote, There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. It's not an excuse to not do it. It's a command to do it. By quoting Deuteronomy 15 to Judas, I think Jesus is calling him out in front of his friends. he's he's, He's saying what John added parenthetically, that Jesus, that, excuse me, That is not true. Judas has absolutely no concern for the poor, as was commanded by God in Deuteronomy. 
In fact, Judas is stealing from the poor by dipping into the money bag. And so Jesus is saying to Judas, you leave her alone and quit pretending to be so spiritual. You're an imposter. You're a poser. You're not concerned with the poor or my mission. You see? That's the end of the conversation. Really awkward time around that table. I mean, you think talking politics around the Thanksgiving table is awkward. I mean, this is, you know, oops, crickets, right? So what do we take away from this story? Anything? I said at the beginning that, that I think this story is about worship. I think this story shows us several forms of worship that probably align with several different personality types. Several ways that people are sort of hardwired for worship. At the center of this story is Mary and her extravagant expression of, of worship of Jesus. It was costly. It was, it was likely premeditated. It wasn't just on a whim uh, it was viewed by some as inappropriate for the, for the cultural mores of the, of the day. But her worship was sincere. It, it was an expression of her deep love for the Savior. She didn't do it to draw attention to herself. In fact, every time that Mary is mentioned in, God's, in John's gospel, you know where she is? At the feet of Jesus. Every time. She's at Jesus' feet, always in this posture of humility. And Jesus said that her act of worship would forever be linked to the telling of the gospel. Some of you this morning are extravagant worshipers. I don't know, maybe, maybe along the way someone has criticized you for that. I just want to say to you, if you're sincere in it, not, not doing it for selfish reasons... I believe Jesus sees that as beautiful, just like he did with Mary. Behind the scenes in this story is another worshiper, Martha. John tells us that she was serving this meal to honor Jesus. You know that the most common Greek word for worship in the New Testament, the one that is most often used for worship, means to serve. Isn't that interesting? Um, less common is a word that means to, to prostrate yourself, like, like Mary did. Less common in the Bible are the worship leaders. The most common term used for worship in the Bible is to serve. To serve. Martha is worshiping by serving. She's not grumbling about it anymore. It's an expression of her deep love and devotion to Jesus, just like Mary's. She seems to have come to grips with knowing that people worship in different ways. Not everyone worships by working in the kitchen. But for those who do, being backstage doesn't make it any less sincere or beautiful to Jesus. Some of you are Marthas. My wife is a Martha. She, she 
much prefer to be in the kitchen washing dishes after an event. That's where she wants to be, right? Uh, right now, she's holding babies in the nursery, behind the scenes. No one, no one else sees it, right? Some of you men are Marthas. That sounded weird. Uh, some of you men prefer behind-the-scenes serving, uh, behind-the-scenes worshipers. We need behind-the-scenes worshipers. We, we have more opportunities here at Grace for behind-the-scenes servers than, than any other roles. We have things uh, at the church that, that need some attention. Sometimes it's, it's just taking care of this wonderful facility that the Lord has given us. Sometimes it's setting up for other ministries to do what they do. I've been asking, and I don't mean this in a harsh way, but I've been asking for weeks for more help with, with chair setup. And I know Saturdays are a valuable time for families, but some of you might consider worshiping in this way by coming out and helping to set up chairs for an hour on Saturday so that we can worship together on Sunday. Uh, we need people to use their serving gifts to worship the Lord. I think Lazarus gives us a third example of worship. I think Lazarus worshiped by witnessing. Uh, down in verses 10 and 11, we learn that many people were believing in Jesus because of Lazarus' testimony. In fact, Lazarus was added to the hit list of the Jewish authorities along with Jesus uh, because, because of Lazarus, many we're believing in Jesus. And so he, he also needed to be eliminated, it seems. It's interesting. We have no uh, recorded words spoken by Lazarus in the Bible. I, I think he probably spoke, but none of his words are recorded for us. And I think this may emphasize that Lazarus' main way of witnessing was through his changed life. He probably wasn't an apologist like Paul the Apostle. He probably was much more like the blind man that Jesus healed. All I know is I was blind and now I can see and Jesus is the one who did it. Right? Lazarus had probably been asked many times over and over, how do you explain what happened to you? Dude, you were dead for four days. How did Jesus do that? I don't know. All I know is I was dead, and now I'm alive, and Jesus did it. I hear a lot of people say, you know, I, I don't know enough about the Bible to be able to, to share the gospel with people. I'm not smart enough, or I'm not whatever enough. I want to say you don't have to be a theologian or, or Bible scholar to, to evangelize, to witness to people. All you got to do is show people that your life has changed and tell them that Jesus is the one responsible for it. You, you can bring your friends to a theologian or Bible scholar later on to get some of their tough questions answered. I, th I think what's important in Lazarus's worship is that all of us uh, can and should
be worshiping in this way. We need to be showing that we were once dead, but, but now we're alive in Christ. There's a fourth kind of worship that I think is woven into this story in John 12. It's, it's much more subtle, but I think it's the focus of Jesus' conversation with Judas, so I think it's an important takeaway for us in this series. Compassioning is probably not a word, uh, but I hope it works in this context. Uh, the whole of the Bible talks about doing justice and compassionately caring for the, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the prisoner, uh, the refugee. It, it's all the way through there. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that it's a characteristic of those who will enter his kingdom. James and Deuteronomy both say that this is the kind of worship that is pleasing to God. So I would just want to say that showing compassion to the least of those in our community is a way that we worship. I don't know if you've ever thought of it in, in those terms. This is why we invest time and money into doing it. It's why we have ministries like Brown Bag and Operation Dignify, where we're, we're trying to clothe and, and uh, put together hygiene kits for houseless people. Um, uh, taste of grace. Um, we, we need people to help with that. It's, it's why it's really important that we find a lead person to organize making sack lunches um, every week. Almost 200 of them. And again, if you're that person, if my saying that, something's tugging at your heart, come and talk to me, please. Some of you are just wired for this. You, your heart beats for worshiping in this way. You, you see an injustice and you just want to scream, this is not okay. And if it's you, you know what I'm talking about. You've, you felt that. This is not okay, Right? There are opportunities, that's what I want you to know. There's opportunities for you to worship God by helping, uh, by being involved in ministries like this. And this is important, whether you feel like you're wired for it or not, we all need to be supportive of this and look for opportunities to worship by showing compassion to the least of these in our community. Okay, I hope that all of you are actively engaged in one of these uh, expressions of worship. Uh, maybe this morning you've, you've gained a, a broader, new understanding of what worship is. Maybe you can see that how you're wired can be used as an opportunity for worship. And as you do these things, with, with that mindset, that this is an act of worship, um, I believe that what happened in this story will happen in your lives and, and not only here at Grace, but around our community. It will become this sweet aroma that fills the whole house, that rises up to God and causes him to say, that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of worship that pleases me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these examples of 
of worshipers that we see in this story. Uh, I pray that all of us, myself included, would grow in our own love and devotion to you and that we would find ways to express that love and devotion to you through tangible acts of worship, responding to who you are, what you have done, and what you will do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.